Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond blog, Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Patricia. I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay, wonderful, Patricia. We had a little snafu here, but everything is going okay now. Well, Patricia will monitor the chat room and post comments concerning our discussion tonight. Well, I'm happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Blog Talk Radio account or Facebook. Well, tonight's show will focus on universities studying slavery, and I am so happy to welcome our guest, Kenyatta Berry. Kenyatta is a professional genealogist, entrepreneur, and attorney with over 20 years of experience in genealogical research and writing. She began her genealogical journey in law school studying at the State Library of Michigan. A native of Detroit, Kenyatta graduated from Bates Academy, And then she went on to Michigan State University and Thomas M. Cooley Law School. She has deep roots in Detroit, the city her ancestors have lived in since 1920. Well, you all may know or remember Kenyatta as a host on the Genealogy Roadshow. And she has been featured on several morning news shows in various markets and made a splash with her appearance on The Real. Do you all remember that? She revealed the DNA results of the host. Her most recent appearance on For Peak's Sake, OWN, is generating a buzz surrounding her expertise in the field of genealogy. By the way, everyone, Kenyatta is working on her first book, The Family Tree Toolkit. This is a comprehensive guide to uncovering your ancestors and researching genealogy. And I know I look forward to seeing this book coming out very soon. So let me give a warm welcome to Kenyatta Berry to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Kenyatta. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
Well, I'm happy to have you. Well, we're going to have a really interesting discussion tonight, but I want you to start off by telling us what motivated you to really explore the university studying slavery. Uh yeah, so great question. I think what really motivated me to explore kind of the group university studying slavery is, one, because the University of Virginia um, kind of spearheaded this group. It's a kind of informal collection or organization of 30, I believe, universities, um, some international, but around the country that either have um, acknowledged or atoned or had some type of comment about the role that enslaved labor um played in building institution, or, you know, some students have worked on projects, or some of these uh, institutions also have committees and working groups that need to submit reports. My personal interest comes from my family is from the Charlottesville area and neighboring counties of Madison, Culpeper, and uh, also Orange County, Virginia, so all within that area. So the personal interest for me to go to the conference that they held um, in October last year at UVA in Charlottesville. Now, what's interesting to me about universities studying slavery is that oftentimes I think universities are a overlooked resource or um, they're not a resource that's not used, um, I should say, for research around enslaved labor because a lot of the papers and collections and things like that from maybe past professors or prominent families in the area are donated to the archives um, of the library and the special collections there as well to maintain those papers and then make them available for research. Oftentimes that research is done by historians. Um, so one of the things that I found in doing this work is there really is a, there's not a real natural bridge between uh, genealogists and historians. Now what I mean by that is for some reason, I don't know if this started way before I started doing genealogy, but I've discussed this with genealogists and historians. There, I believe there was this myth or perception that genealogists dis- did this type of thing or um, research as a hobby. And so they really weren't taken seriously. And then on the other side of the house, you have the historians who are very focused, very laser-focused on their area of study, whether it's slavery uh, in Virginia or in a particular county. And they typically have the time and access to resources that we don't as genealogists sometimes and that we may not know exist. So really wanted to go to this group. My first initial piece was I – I grew extremely frustrated uh, with the releasing of data related to slaves uh, that were involved in these institutions or worked at these institutions or were sold by these institutions, right? So everybody's doing something different. UVA could be posting a document on their website. Um, Maybe they're transcribing it. Maybe they're not. Um, You know, institutions or organizations even like Mount Vernon can post a database, but how does that really tie back to the families that were enslaved by George Washington? Um, You have folks that are doing things differently at Washington and Lee versus what they're doing at Georgetown and other places, right? There are a ton of projects going on. So my frustration is that there's no common data model. And what does that really mean? Meaning that there's not five or six or even three, but we probably need five or more, basic pieces of information that each institution needs to have when they release this data to the public, right? So in its current form, it's not very easy to use, even for experienced genealogists like us, but imagine someone who's just trying to find their ancestors who might have been enslaved um, and worked on that institu- uh, at that institution. So that's how I initially started, was from the technology background, wanting there to be a baseline for data so it's easy to find this information, and also trying to get all the universities to work together. Since they're all part of this consortium, I thought that would be sort of the best place to start. So that's how I got my um, initial thought to, to work with the institutions. Now, when you say, I mean, you have these different institutions, and you're correct, they each have their little niche and they're, you know, releasing information in different places. But who's pretty much heading up this this consortium, you said, of 30 universities? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, from what it, from what I've heard, right, uh, University of Virginia is really kind of driving the, uh, they're kind of the institution that's spearheading this, but it's driven off the uh, slavery working group, and I'm not probably saying the appropriate name for it, but that they have at UVA. That group has different things. You know, the commission is charged, um, you know, has been charged by the president, by the institution, to accomplish certain things 
that relate to UVA, right? So the enslaved in and around Charlottesville, the enslaved at UVA, they um, were the host institutional conference, as I said, last year. So I think they've really been spearheading that. To that end, there is not, to my knowledge, um, and I, you know, someone could correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there is sort of a kind of a, if you would say like an advisory council that's over yes. all of the institutions, right? I think UVA is leading the charge, but there's still there's still room to grow and to and to try to formalize this in a way that's useful, um, and and to make sure that genealogists are included in these decisions around data, right? Because if they leave it, if it you know everyone does something differently, but also they do it with scholars in mind, um, then it may become difficult for us to use to find our ancestors. Well, do you see any reaching out to genealogists so that they could at least sit at the table and say these are the this is a database that may be of help to us, so could you please consider these elements in this database so that we know how to access this information right and it's you know I've seen it just in my personal experience, Bernice. I have gone. I basically just email people, right? I mean, it was a year. You know, I think I'd emailed the gentleman who's heading up the UVA commission probably six or eight months before he even got in contact with me, which is fine. I totally understand. Um, and it's just been a one-on-one type of thing, right? When I was at the conference, I made sure in every session that I stood up and said to all the historians, "Are you working with genealogists?" Right. So I think what you'll find is it's it's kind of a two-way street. I don't think the historians really know where and how to find the genealogist. Um, I think everyone's looking at Georgetown, and they're saying, well, Georgetown has genealogists working on it, so maybe we can get those genealogists to do the same thing. Um, I've heard of that. But I also think that the genealogists kind of need to be aware of these projects that are going on in your in your state, in your town, in the county, which your ancestors lived. Because when I met with a gentleman at uh, University of Maryland, I was just there um, visiting friends for the weekend, and I got in Thursday night. And I said, Friday, I want to meet with you because you're working with my alma mater, Michigan State, on a database, um, like a, kind of a portal to combine or at least make data easier to access from eight different websites, right, that are maintained by many institutions. And they've gotten, like, I believe a $1.5 million grant to start that project to go into the second phase. And when I met with him, I said, you know, I just want to make sure we have a voice at the table. So a lot of it has been, you know, me reaching out individually. I think is there more education to the historians um, and more education with the genealogists to not be afraid? And that's what I talked about. I don't know if there's a perception that genealogy is just a hobby and the historians haven't taken it seriously or if that's just something that happened in the past and has now changed. I do think that once, I, once they are connected, I have found, at least with my work um, that I'm starting with the University of Mississippi, that they understand the need to have a genealogist. They understand what we do and the value that we can bring, especially to this type of research, when, to be quite honest, 90% of the people who are doing the research as historians are non-African Americans. So that means you want to go into a community within Oxford, within Charlottesville, and talk about people that are enslaved, or have their uh, you know descendants of enslaved people that work in that institute that worked you know at that institution were enslaved at that institution, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to kind of bridge that gap unless you have someone who can kind of uh, translate what you're saying right to the community at large so they understand it and also has a, a genealogist involved so you know how to present that information in a meaningful way. Yes. So while you're talking about okay genealogists should be at the table, give us an idea of the various universities that are right now that you're aware of that are just studying slavery, and perhaps where should the genealogists start? Who should they contact? Yeah, so um, the first thing is typically um, I would definitely start by going to the University Studying Slavery website um, that's hosted by UVA. That will give you a list of the institutions that are currently a part of it, right? Those institutions that are part of this consortium. doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't other institutions that are studying slavery, but that's a start, right, just for people to see. Um, so that's one way. And as far as who to contact, right, typically each university 
has a different setup, but you're going to find either one, a working group, right? So, for example, the working group at University of Mississippi, which I, I'll mention a lot because it's the one institution I've been working most closely with since I met them in October, right? So I met them at University Studying Slavery in Charlottesville. Um, they have a working group, and it started by um, – they started uh, with the uh, – we were just talking about them um, – by reading um, the book Ebony and Ivy. Um, by Craig Stephen Wilder, and when they started to, that started, you know, they invited a few people, sent a few emails. Um, the two folks that are head of the group, uh, the working group, one's a sociologist, the other historian, but they thought they might get 15 or 20 people, but they ended up getting kind of like 40-plus people to show up at this working group to really discuss Right, what was to discuss this book, Ebony and Ivy, and then to really kind of think about what can they do since they know and knew that slavery played a role in the establishment and building of the University of Mississippi. So that's kind of a grassroots, right? So you'll have some people that are very grassroots, right? They start at the professor level. Um, sometimes they'll have a website. There may be one person that's doing it. Um, and then there's a different, there's another kind of the opposite end would be something like UVA, where they have a commission that is established and they have a charge and they have a report and they have things that they have to do and they make recommendations. Very similar to what you saw at Georgetown. Also, the first institution to do something like this was uh, Brown University almost a decade ago, about a decade ago. Um, so that's really kind of the two groups. It would either be a working group or some established commission. Now, is it really easy to, like, kind of figure out who to contact? Typically, yes, it would be the chair of that group. So Jeff Jackson was a person that I met at University of Mississippi who's a co-chair of their working group, right? And then I reached out to the gentleman who is kind of spearheading um, the commission or at least part of it at UVA. The one good thing about institutions is they're very transparent, so, informa so information around email addresses, you know, what courses they teach, like anything. You can always find a way to get access to those folks. Now, will they respond to your emails? <laughs> That's a different story because uh, we know they have other things going on as well. But you should be able to find the information on the website. I would start with University Studying Slavery. And don't be afraid to reach out. Um, one of the ways that I reach out to these folks is just to really talk about you know, we're, re we're trying to rebuild and reconnect family units. And these institutions have a wealth of resources and documents. And these are the things that we're looking for. These are things that may not be indexed, that may not be easily accessible to us, but they help solve that family mystery. So in explaining that to them and really come in and say, I just want to help you and just be a part of this. You know, a lot going to the conference, University Studying Slavery was at my own expense. Going to American Historical Association to talk to more historians was at my own expense. So this is something that is near and dear to my heart, So, which is why I'm doing it. And I really encourage other genealogists, too, because the more resources we have available for folks to find their people, um, the better off we'll be. And and one of the things that you're basically saying is don't be intimidated by these universities. That exactly. if you have a passion and you you really want to be able to pull out the information that they have so that it could be usable to to others, then you have to knock on the door and say, I'm here, I'm interested and and make that that step. Now you mentioned uh Ebony and Ivy by Greg Stephen Wilder and I just want to uh remind the audience that uh uh Professor Wilder was a guest on this show uh several years ago and you can go back and listen to uh his his uh interview. But let's talk about uh Mississippi a little bit mm -hmm. more. So what where are you going with Mississippi? Tell us a little bit of how you got in the door and then where you hope to go with Mississippi. Sure. Uh, a couple of things. Um, I think with most of these institutions, so for folks looking to do it in their own in their areas or, you know, alma maters or someplace where you know, where their family lived, typically they're going to do there's a couple projects that will come up, right? Uh, you will have something like a Georgetown, right, which everyone knows about, everyone talks about, but the 272 where they're trying to trace, you know, find their continuing, excuse me, 
to find the descendants of the 272 that were sold to save the university, right? So you'll have folks that if there was a, a event or transaction like that, some institutions may, right, and I use air quotes <laughs> when I say that, you know, have provided funds to help these researchers kind of find those descendants. They may um, be applying for grants to do that. Right. Um, specifically with Mississippi, they're interesting because they have a lot of different things that they really want to do. Uh, most recently, you know, they uh, two the sociologists and historian that I met at uh, University Studying Slavery in October gave a presentation around you know just what they were doing on campus, and that's sort of how I got involved with them. And um, I had a few questions. I talked to them afterwards, and they were really looking at the number of, you know, folks in the freshman class, I guess, that came in in the first class at uh, University of Mississippi, you know, what size these slaveholding families that they came from, right? How big were these plantations on average? Um, they, the students were not allowed to bring their enslaved folks, enslaved individuals to the campus, so they actually leased our, um, the enslaved laborers from the university. Uh, it is not known to the date, and, it, and we don't believe that the institution itself actually owned slaves, but that those uh, enslaved individuals were released from the plantation owners that were around the university in Oxford, right? So that's sort of the thought process. So the project is, or part of the project, is really trying to understand and find the descendants of the enslaved people, right? They've identified a few of them through documents, and a lot of times they've been looking actually at minutes of like just the different um, meetings that they had on campus, right? So places that we probably wouldn't uh, necessarily be the first place we'd look is looking at some board minutes or trustee minutes at an institution, but from those minutes they've identified a list of um, the enslaved. So what I'm doing in working with them is, one, trying to help them kind of you know, identify more people and then try to track down those descendants, which we all, we all know can be a time-consuming process. Um, the other part is that because of this data that they're collecting, they want to put this data online. So it gets back to the fundamental issue that I brought up at the beginning, is being able to have a data model that's standard. And so I, you know, in working with them, um, I was on campus for two days, had a number of meetings, met with a lot of folks, um, and it was and across all disciplines. The one thing I like about the University of Mississippi is because they have a very large working group, probably one of the largest um, of the university studying slavery. They have cross you know, people from all disciplines that are participating, which is great because a lot of times you'll just get historians, but you have historians, geneticists, you know, Faulkner scholars, sociologists, all of those folks that are part of this group. So in doing all this research, this data that they're finding is meaningful and useful to folks who had enslaved ancestors in Lafayette County. So they want to also put that data um, online, and they want to put it on online and accessible for folks in a way that's useful. So I'm kind of helping them um, with that. And this is all still in the early stages. I was just in Oxford uh, in Mississippi for my first time in February, so February uh, 18th to the 20th. So recently, just not even a month old, we're still kind of flushing everything out. They're still fairly new in doing all of this. Um, but, you know, the way that I was, that I got involved was I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not intimidated or wasn't intimidated, you know, by approaching institutions. I have the advantage of having worked most of my software career with college institutions, with higher education institutions. So I understand how they work a little bit. I understand the politics, the nuances of them. Um, so, and I kind of know people, you know, within in each, each institution, and I know who does what and who I can kind of approach and different things like that. So I do come with that advantage of having a ton of experience interacting with institutions across the board. Um, so that also helps. I think there's a lot of opportunity for genealogists um, to help, because as these projects grow, you know, there's going to be the ones, okay, I want you to help me find the descendants. There's going to be the ones, you know, the one I'm talking about, the computer perspective, right, the data model, that's coming purely from my technical background, being a software for so long. But there will also be projects that will require volunteers. There are also, you know, I think if for your local genealogy, genealogy society, historical society, genealogy conference, do not forget 
to add the institutions to that list, right? Invite a historian. Understand what the historians or the Ph.D. candidates in your area, at the largest institution in your area, what they're doing. Because a lot of times, I mean, there was so much discussion around slavery at the American Historical Association, which is a, the basically history professor, <laughs> I'm probably not doing a justice, conference, right, in January, which was covered by C-SPAN. So you can watch a lot of those sessions um, on C-SPAN. But there was a lot of discussion around slavery. There's a lot of discussion right now on how to really weave slavery into the story of an institution, right, where I'm talking higher education, as well as something like a uh, Mount Pillar, um, you know, or a Monticello or even Mount Vernon, right? So there's there's this pull, there's this push, I should say, this push to kind of to really tell the complete story. Um, folks who've been around longer than I have know that has not always been the case. So I think the more that we get involved, the more we can make sure this happens and it doesn't become something that they're just doing right now because everyone's talking about it. Right, and not only that, but you find that, one of the things the universities are doing, they're acknowledging that, yes, the university uh, was created on the backs of slave labor, and they're starting to rename certain buildings, uh, but it's it goes beyond the naming of a, of a, a mm-hmm. hall. It's, it, as you said, it's looking at the data and also looking at the descendant communities that are out there that may mm-hmm. not even know that their ancestors had any type of involvement with these universities. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, is a huge challenge for the genealogists to get involved in those universities when you're trying to say, okay, well, was my ancestor a part of this university, what role did they play, and where is the documentation? Because I think that's what's really important to us. Where's the right. documentation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's you know it's the documentation, and it it is the you know how to get the genealogists getting involved. I mean, I do come from a, you know, I was in sales for a long time, so. I'm used to people saying no, right, when you're trying to get people to spend millions of dollars or $100,000 to buy some software and they don't have the money um, at that mm-hmm. time. I'm used to that. So for me it's a little bit different, I think, because I was just like, okay, well, someone tells me no, I'm just going to go to the next person, right, at the institution. I haven't found a lot of resistance um, in that way, but I agree with you that documentation is important. Um, you know, I don't, I personally, to my knowledge, do not have any ties to Mississippi, right? From my research so far, now granted I may have some DNA cousins that were in Mississippi and we'll figure it out, but to, to date my research has mainly focused on Virginia and upstate New York on my mom's side and then Louisiana and Arkansas, right? So for me, going to Mississippi for the first time, being so involved in an institution where I really, and maybe I will find I have some connection at some point, mm-hmm. but where I don't have a connection right now, it was really about let me just try to be that one voice. Maybe someone will listen. And it's really good to find, what, you know, to find a champion or an advocate, right? Because a lot of these projects are things that are started as a, you know, it's a working group, right? It's a grassroots effort. They may or may not have the support of the administration at the institution. I mean, that does happen. Some people have a mandate. This is what you need to do. I want this report. I want it done in two years. Boom, boom, boom. And then they make those recommendations. And sometimes those lead to things you were talking about, right? The renaming of buildings or different things like that. Um, But the grassroots Folks, those are the people that are chairs that are really fighting to get this stuff done. And some of them may be people that it's just five people, it's one person, or it's ten people. But it's really finding those advocates and explaining to them the importance of of having that documentation, of having access, and, and getting to that descendant community that's in the area, right, as a way to kind of atone or acknowledge you know, let's reach out to the community, but the best way for you to do that is to have someone who's used to doing this type of research and who and who knows, right, what we're working with from a kind of, you know, if you get the average African-American coming in to do genealogy research, 
nine times out of ten, they're going to get stuck on 1870. I'm, I'm going to hear the one thing I dislike hearing all the time, <laughs> that there are no records because our family was enslaved. But you're going to get those types of responses unless you get a professional genealogist or genealogy community involved. That's why I say invite them to these fairs, like the, the meetings, the society meetings that you guys have. Get a historian there. Right, someone who studies slavery. It's really easy to find out what they study, what classes they teach, because that's the beauty of institutions. They are so transparent, probably to a fault, with information, um, because that's the way that they need to be. Right, and we have a comment in the chat room. They're not just sure if just naming a building does it. I mean, it has to go beyond naming a building. And you find at some of these universities that the big advocates are the students that they have uncovered some information about a, a university and they want to see something happen. And perhaps reaching out to these students and talking to them to say, wait a minute, why don't you study your family? Was your family involved in, in slavery in any way? Were they enslaved at the institution and institution was built on their backs and their hard labor? I mean, it's so many ways that we can really motivate the genealogists to get involved at the university level to find out just what's going on. I mean, I'm just intrigued just by the fact that you're talking about these databases, that there's no no standard model here, so that we could go to five different universities and we may see that information presented in a lot of different ways. So how... Uh, you know, are are the universities even receptive to coming up with a standard database on how they will present that information to the public? Uh, yes. So I've approached, um, I've talked to folks at Georgetown, UVA, um, Miss, uh, University of Mississippi, University of Alabama, a couple of folks, um, University of South Carolina, and um, and I've also been, you know, uh, present. Um, at different lectures uh, or presentations from Mount Pillar, um, as well as Highland, I think it was Monroe, and then Monticello and uh, Mount Vernon, right, which each of those have their own databases, right? So you're talking about the, the former plantations or the plantations of U.S. presidents and the way that they present that information is totally different, too. So they are open. I think this is something that is needs to be driven um, – you know, by the by the genealogy community. I mean, to be quite honest, I just rolled in and said, hey, you guys need a data standard. I've worked in technology. Um, let's figure this thing out. And they're like, oh, yeah, we do. But the way that they do these things are through grants, right? You know, none of us are independently wealthy. Um, so we can't just necessarily say, okay, well, let's go out, build this data model, and then everyone adopt it. I mean, they're open to it. I think they understand it needs to be done. They agree. I think with anything, when you're dealing with um, – institutions uh, and nonprofits, there's a lot of things that they have to, you know, they have to deal with and they have to um, kind of work through their proper channels. Um, and then the resources, right? Again, to the, to the point of some of these things are grassroots and some of the mandates and things that they get from the top and from the administration may not necessarily deal with this problem, right? Because this is something that, you know, they kind of looked at it like, oh, well, that makes sense. Because if you're building a database for a scholar or, you know, an academic or a researcher, you're going to look at the data in a very, very different way than a genealogist is or someone who's just starting to figure out their family tree, right? So I think that's where right. the genealogy community can help, can help a lot. I think they are open, but it's not, it's not going to be kind of an overnight thing. Some of these databases, unfortunately, are already done. Right, so it's like let me just look at these five different places they're posting information, and you know I can see it in very different ways. Now, I think university studying slavery is is a place to start. Right, I think it is very important because you already have institutions that are part of this consortium. You know, to date, we already know most of them have done something or have some database or some ongoing project around the enslaved that worked on campus um, or that were sold by their institutions. So there's already a interest, right, and there's already, um, you know, perhaps some administrative buy-in. 
right, where you're not climbing an uphill battle, where you're going to an institution that's not even trying to acknowledge it, even if you knew that your ancestor was part of it or worked on that uh, campus. So I think that's the best place to start. And it starts with having these conversations. You know, there were a number of genealogists that were at the conference last year. I was pleasantly surprised because it was cool to see the genealogists there being able to give our opinion and say, you know, this is why we think this is important and providing another voice. So I think that's something that we'll need to continue to push. Um, but it'll take genealogists in all different areas, right, in all different parts of the country to help get that, to help make that happen. Right. And, I mean, you started off by saying you're doing this because this is a strong interest of yours, but you're doing it on your own dime. Yes. Uh, but there is, a, there is a money factor, and this is what Family Tree Girl is posting in the chat room. There is a, a, a money factor here. Because for the genealogists to really become engaged in what's happening at the various universities, either there's going to have to be some type of grant to support their engagement or, as you said, volunteer. Uh, But it's something to think about. Uh, And I don't know if you've even looked at any types of grants to assist genealogists to get involved I personally have not. Um, I have been – there's a couple ways I've been looking at this from a financial perspective, right? Um, You know, you could do it through foundations. So I've been paying a lot of attention to the foundations that have been given money to institutions, right? So if it's, um, you know, I think it was the Mellon Foundation, I believe, that gave Michigan State and a couple institutions $1.5 million. Okay, so they're giving them money, right, for this particular database and our project. Well, what other types of, you know, will they get money for similar projects, right? Um, So I've been looking at that. A lot of the institutions and the folks that I work with or have been talking to individually have been applying for grants, right? So sometimes they collectively get together to apply for a grant, not that often, but they do it individually. Some get Mm -hmm. awarded and some don't. So a lot of the money that the money factor, right, because I'm not saying, you know, people need to get paid, right? That's just plain and simple. Um, and the way for genealogists to do that, there there is the money factor of, you know, maybe finding an institution that has some funds available to, uh, to help with the research. Um, one of the things a lot of people mention is, because it's talked about a lot, is Georgetown. But Georgetown, the research for that is being funded by an alum who has the, the, the money to do that, right? It's not something that's being funded by the institution or a grant or anything else. So that's totally different, mm-hmm. right? That's a person with an interest in it. Um, but I, I haven't um, looked into grants. That's something I will start to do um, now that I am doing genealogy full-time. Um, you know, money's going to be a factor for me as well. I live by the beach in Santa Monica. I no longer have the software job as my plan A or plan B. So, um you know, that's going to be something I can start taking a look at uh, in the next couple months. Why? Well, Kenyatta, we're going to take a quick break and then come right back, okay? Okay. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. And you can join us every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. 
Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and it can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Kenyatta Berry discussing universities studying slavery. Now, I have a a large comment I'm going to, to read to you. This is from Mark. He says, Genealogists inform the historians with names, dates, and locations. Historians provide context. We open doors for each other. Don't forget historic black newspapers, which inform both families and academicians. And thank you, Mark. This is very timely. You're right about that. Well, Kenyatta, we're on here. I have lots of folks in the chat room, and they've mentioned the historically black universities. Are any of them involved in this university study and slavery uh, consortium? Um, let me check. I believe there might be one. I haven't seen um that many. I know I know that some attended the actual conference. Um but a lot uh, most of the institutions are um the larger um state schools. The larger state schools. Mm-hmm. And there's questions about, you know, do you have schools from Louisiana, Tennessee, Alabama, Missouri, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, West Virginia? Yeah. <laughs> I want to um, know, where, where are these schools? <laughs> where are these? Okay, so first, just um, real quick, uh, Norfolk State is actually part of the consortium, so they are listed on the website. Um, okay. So that's one. Um, most of the institutions, if I look at the list, a lot are in Virginia. Um, and then we have, um, oh, and then we also, yes, a lot of Virginia, um, Mississippi. Um, Rutgers is part of it. Brown is part of it as well. Um, one school in Alabama. Um, and then there's a school in the U.K., a school in Scotland. I mentioned Mississippi already, North Carolina as well, and South Carolina. I haven't seen um, – not University of Tennessee is not on the list, some of those other schools. Again, the folks that are involved, remember this is a consortium uh, that's spearheaded or being led by University of Virginia. It's kind of just getting a group of people that are studying slavery together to kind of talk best practices, learn from each other, see what other institutions are doing, um, and institutions that join the consortium, participate in the conference. They also uh, go on the website. So some of these, some of the smaller groups may, or a historian or a professor may be working on a project about slavery in Alabama or in some in Tennessee or some other institution. But just because they're not part of University of Studying Slavery doesn't mean that that project isn't happening. It just means that maybe they don't have the same amount of um, manpower or support that some of these other institutions do. Yes. Now I want to uh, find out. Under this this umbrella of university study and slavery, have you seen like sub subgroups? For example, uh, Brown University has the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. Now, mm-hmm. this is a, a research center, but are you seeing that many of these universities have research centers where they're just studying slavery and they're looking at you know the justice end of it? Yeah, that's a good question. So Brown, um, one of the recommendations from um, Dr. Uh, Ruth Simmons, I believe is her name, when she was president, um, was the establishment of this center to study slavery. So I think a lot of times, you know, kind of a past decade or more, you know, I know Yale has a center to study slavery as well. I think these institutions kind of looked at it as, okay, let's make it an academic research center, right, so we can study Mm -hmm. slavery in our area um, and slavery in the U.S. and maybe, you know, even transatlantic. Um, So I think that, I think, I don't know how many centers we will see being established moving forward. Of the variety of what I see is a task force or a committee or a working group. 
each of those have mm-hmm. different things, right? The committees, if there if there's a, t- a committee or a task force that's been started at the top, right? So that's what the administration. Then those are the folks that are going to be doing the reports that we'll be able to read. It's very similar to what we saw with Georgetown, and they're going to have recommendations, right? Some people are just going to acknowledge it, and that's it. Right. Your news story about right. it, and that's it, right? Um, you know, other folks are going to really want to delve. If they want to establish something within the community, they may want to they may go further and want to research the descendants of the enslaved on campus so they can share that information with them because they may not even know. And then during the process, they may want to during the process, a lot of them in doing this research, they want to publish documents. They figure like, well, a way for us to help is to put those documents out there. That's where the problem comes because they're in different forms. There's no data standard. And how do I know? As the average African American looking for my slave ancestors, how do I know where that is? So I think that's really um, what the different flavors of things that I'm seeing um, from these institutions at this point. If that answers your question, right? And that really, I mean, to me, that's the big challenge because if you don't even know where where is this information, where is the home for this information. They're gathering it, but can you actually go to that university and say, okay, I want to see this database? I mean, you know that these various universities have special collections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can go to Duke University and what have you, and can, you can look at some of those papers that have been donated to these various universities, but have they put it in a format in such a way that somebody like me, a genealogist, could go in and start looking at this information? And they haven't, and I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, I've talked about this before, and I I talked about it when I was at Roots Tech. The main reason why I am in California is because I left, I quit my job and moved across country, uh, left Cambridge, Massachusetts, to at the time call what I was, what I was calling slavegenealogy.com. I had gone and pitched to VCs, and the whole purpose of that was to make these documents you're talking about, Bernice, make them available online in a way that's useful for African Americans to find their enslaved ancestors, for genealogists. Um, That was over a decade ago, and it's been a a long process. Um, Obviously, I've had to, you know, um, I had to work (laughs) uh, during that time frame, so I wasn't able to to devote 100% of my time to that, but I know there's momentum in the community mm-hmm. and with others around just finding a way to get all this information in a place where we can access it and where we can use it. And that really hasn't, um, that, that hasn't happened yet. And that's going to take, that's a big project. It's going to take a broader community, right, a bigger group. This is just me, as I like to say, you know, I was saying when I was talking about slave genealogy, one woman with a dream, right, you know, I'm thinking of this. But there are other people who obviously understand the value of it, who want to be involved, and it's not something that, neither myself or just the University of Mississippi can do by ourselves, right? It's a, it's a community effort, both on the side of historians and the academics and the genealogists. And it's just, it's an education piece. You know, it's educating them to think, right? If you think about when we're in a room or when someone's in a room and the voices that are at the table, if your voice isn't there, they're not going to think about you, right? And that's not because they don't think that you matter, but that's just the reality of it. But even if you're at the table and you can just say, hey, it's important to have a genealogist or, hey, it's important to, you know, pull us in when you have these projects and and help us and, you know, kind of let us help you, right? Um, I think that it's that kind of communication, um, which is why, you know, I showed up at AHA and other conferences and trying to really get to know these historians so they understand that. Um, the other thing I think you also find out in dealing with and working with these institutions is just getting to know these folks. Go to your local, you know, any local. Uh, I always go to history events at UCLA, right? I have shown up at events around slavery where it's a 16 people in the room, and they all know each other. And they're like, who is this person? <laughs> but it was on the website. It was free. And so I showed up because I wanted, you know, to make my presence known and say, "There, talk to genealogists. We need this research that you guys are doing. Um and you'll find that they're working on some very interesting projects. I mean, there was one gentleman in Mississippi who was building a database of um, the value of various uh, chefs or cooks on plantations based on ads. And uh, he's looking in newspapers and things like that, and he's doing it because he is a chef part-time. Like, that's his interest, right? So mm-hmm. it's like something that's so obscure like that, but he's working on that. 
And that data is extremely important. I mean, if you think about the data um, behind uh, Dr. Barry's book around, um, I have it, uh, it's a pound for my flesh. I think the price the price for the, their pound of price flesh. Price yes. Yeah. Yes. The database she built mm-hmm. behind that, I saw her speak last year in L.A., and she has, you know, a, a database of maybe 8,000 or more names, right, just based on her research for that book. Right, so these historians that are watching, that are writing these books, that are doing these projects, they're building these databases, and maybe some of it, you know, they can't share, or some, or they can only share part of it, or maybe they don't know where to share it. But the more that we start communicating with each other, the importance of that data sharing, and then building that data model, then eventually, you know, it'll be, it won't be something where there has to be a genealogist in the room. And they're talking about a new database. They'll think of us as one of the consumers of that product. Right. And, you know, I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, there's another genealogist, Antoinette Harrell. For the last 20 years, she's been looking, she calls herself the slavery detective, and she's been studying peonage. And although it was like a one-woman show, she's out there, and it's one of the things that you're out there. You're saying, listen, folks, this is a database that needs to be developed. And while you're out there doing the talking, Kenyatta, you have other people who are here, they're listening to you, and perhaps can even get involved with you to Mm -hmm. support what you're trying to do because clearly a database does need to be developed, which is consistent throughout the various universities studying slavery so that the ordinary consumer can go and research and find the information that they're looking for. Now, to your knowledge, has FamilySearch looked at any of the databases that are in some of the universities? Um, not to my knowledge. Um, I don't. I have not. I personally haven't approached them um, about that. Um, it would be great if they did. I think to kind of you know, if, if folks are interested um, in getting involved and helping or have ideas or whatever. I mean, at this point, you can always um, email me at my website um, at kenyattaberry.com. And I will I will keep people abreast of what's going on. I can't you know just be the only person doing this. Um, but the other component we have here is cost, right? So let's think about this. We talked about the cost for either doing genealogists getting involved as volunteers or getting paid, right, because we all need to make money and should make money for the work that we do. But then the other part of that is what's the cost to the consumer? Is this something that's going to be free, right, or is this something that they're going to have to pay for, like a subscription site for like an ancestry? I think most of the institutions I've talked to, they want it to be free, right? That's what they put the data out there. Today the data they have out there is out there, and it's free to access. You have to know where to find it, but it's free to access. Um, Building something that's more comprehensive will, um, I think, if there's not a cost associated with it, not for family search, but maybe if other folks are thinking about other uh, consumer companies to get involved, um, they have to see the business model for that. I think the, the advantage of having a university is they have kids that need, or students, I should say, that need projects, right, to work on, um, student-led projects uh, in computer science, right? Um, they have, if that's something that's, you know, that they work on for four years or two years, hopefully it won't take that long, whatever the amount of time, they have those resources. They also have the servers and the money and all of that to host it, right, because you've got to think about maintaining the site moving forward. So that's one of the advantages I've seen in doing my research and working with institutions because all of that cost, when you start to do it on the commercial side or the private side, becomes something that you'll have to charge for. That's right. Somebody's going to have to maintain that database. Yeah, exactly. Once it so gets developed, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So that's been a, it, it's a lot of moving parts. You know, I think really what the, the big thing is the conversations are just starting. I'm excited that they have the University Studying Slavery group, right, that they have their different meetings and uh, things like that. I think they have one coming up in April um, at Holland's University, but also um, – that there's talk about this stuff. You know, when I moved here 10 years ago, and I'm sure everyone on the phone can remember this well before me, when I started doing research um, when I was in school, no one really wanted to talk about slavery. It was not something people wanted to talk about. And, you know, I remember having people turn their backs on me when I talked about raising money for a company to help people find their enslaved ancestors. 
the fact that people are talking about it now, that people understand that we need a data model, that it that this is resonating with individuals, um, both the institutions and genealogists and historians alike, is really, really um, is a good sign, right? Because it shows some progress. But I also feel like we have to be a force and we have to be a voice so that this is not something that they just do for a couple of years and say, oh, we did that, we addressed it, right? Let's be a voice and a force to say, if you're going to do this, you need to do it right in this way, or at least, you know, let us have our voice, but let us tell you why it's important and why you need to maintain this. And then from that, how you can reach out to the community as well, right, where the institutions are located. Right. And there's a comment, and this is uh, Family Tree Girl is saying, pretty much each state has a foundation for humanities, maybe mm. another place to make contact or even down to the local historical societies. I mean, of course, the local historical societies have to have the money and the resources to do this, though. We we know that. But it's it's a beginning. We we do need to keep this conversation going, definitely. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on tonight to share what you're doing, what the university is doing. People may not have even been aware of the fact that we had uh, there is a consortium university studying slavery out there. So uh, this is a beginning, and I think the conversation needs to keep going. Others need to get involved. Now, do you have any closing remarks you want to share with us before we close out tonight? Uh, yeah, well, thanks again for having me on the show. I'm excited to talk about this. Obviously, it's something that I'm very passionate um, about, and I think it's a big enough project that there's opportunity for everyone um, to participate. Uh, both, you know, as volunteers, as paid genealogists. Um, I think there's opportunities for folks that are in a certain area, whether you're Virginia, Alabama, South Carolina, or Louisiana, <laughs> whatever your area is, an opportunity for you to really be that kind of um, that voice, that expert to help these institutions or even a society, right, within that uh, group to help. Um, or that state to help. I do, you know, if anyone has any feedback or suggestions or anything, feel free to get um, in contact with me. As I mentioned, I will keep everyone up to date on sort of what I'm doing. My website is in transition, so once I launch my new one, um, you'll be able to have more access to kind of the projects that I'm working on. But in the end, I think um, this is a time. We're at a point, at a critical point. I realize the reason I left my job is, I realized that it was now or never, right? It had been so long since I had been talking about this and working on it and being my passion, but at the end of the day, I thought that no one's going to really remember me for selling software, which was good. I loved it. I enjoyed working in technology. But what matters to me and what keeps me going and motivates me is being able to reconnect these families. And I know that these institutions have a wealth of resources, um, both in labor and money and documents, and that all we collectively need to do is to, to go to these institutions and make our voice heard. And I think we will be welcomed, um, maybe unlike before, or maybe, that, as I said, that was a perception or a misconception, but I really just want everyone who's listening um, and who's involved in African-American genealogy or genealogy in general, because it's not just an African-American issue. This is an American history issue. So I want everyone involved to or listening to try to get involved with their institutions. And if they don't have a project, then ask them why. All right. Well, as you all have heard, this is really your call to action. We need to make our voices heard, as Kenyatta Berry has informed us. So thank you so much, Kenyatta, for sharing your knowledge, your enthusiasm with us around this particular topic. And I just want everyone else to remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond, and that beyond includes those universities. Now, you can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page, and also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton-Raji on Fridays 
And also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And I, you know, I look forward to all of you joining me next week. Well, this is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and co-host Patricia Glover Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Kenyatta. Thank you. Good night. Good night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.